You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Hey everyone, welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities, the show where Emily and I read the Bible, talk about it, and record what we talk about. <laughs> well, that's a or at least part of what we talk about. Pretty accurate summation there. I mean, very factual statement, I think. <laughs> so, Ever been accused of um, being too literal? Um, a couple times. Um, the thing is, um, for me, uh, things that are overly factual or understated to me, I think is... I think those are some of the funniest forms of comedy. Well, yeah. And so, yeah, a lot of people don't get it. Um, I know. I know. Yeah. But to me, to understate something that's absolutely terrible or over the top is just, to me, I think is one of the funniest things a person can do. Yeah. Well, we just have odd taste and humor anyway, because we've, we've never been like slapstick comedy or even like a lot of the more popular comedies on tv it's kind of like what 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 are you doing mm-hmm. so yeah that comedy and inspiring true stories i don't do either one of those i don't need another reason to feel guilty for sitting on my couch so yeah, yeah I, I don't need them and don't show me a movie where the animal dies just don't do it right I, i'm out well yeah <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm i'm pretty sure that like uh you know understated comedy uh Obscure movie references, and even more obscure references to things medieval, ancient, or scientific. That's that's basically my sense of humor. Yeah, pretty much. That, that's kind of both of us, I think. Is yeah, we aren't normal. We acknowledge it. We embrace it. So yeah, yeah. Both of us are kind of tired and just a little wonky this morning. So that sometimes makes our sense of humor even stranger. So I mean, it was a good yeah. week. Don't get me wrong, because your wife, love her. We got to give her a shout out for this. <laughs> she came in to my home, and number one, she helped with meals, which was fantastic. She like comes in with this freezer, or this chest of ice chest, whatever that thing is. You hold cold food in, full of freezer meals, filled my freezer up, and then she cooked while she was here. Which anybody who knows me knows food is like the way to my heart. And I thought that was like the ultimate way to my heart. And then she revealed to me, no, it's not because then she took four boxes of chaos that also known as show notes that were disorganized, rumpled, you know, the edges bent and she organized them into these wonderful binders with tabs between each chapter. And I, I mean, good grief. Uh, it's like, I didn't know it was stressing me out until she took care of it. And so I'm yeah. so grateful <laughs> for that. I mean, the other stuff was wonderful too. Don't get me wrong, but that was just like, you know, dessert. So I am really, at, you know, I'm glad you shared her with me for, you know, I, what Sunday through Wednesday was how long she was here. So yeah. Yeah. And, and for those who are, who are not uh, really keeping up with us on social media, our mom's kind of not great health. And so she's living with Emily. Mm-hmm. And so Mickey, went in to help there's there's because there's not a whole lot that i can do being the son the with the kind of help mom needs on a lot of this stuff right um so um 
but that was something I, Mickey, you know, she's a teacher, so she's got summers off. I was working, so she just decided, well, we'll take the girls in. You're going to be gone most of the day anyway. So, (laughs) (laughs) well, and we got to take the girls down to the river and play and, you know, um, it was it was a good trip, I thought, and I I yeah. enjoyed it. And of course, Mickey and I don't get to hang out just us very often. And I say right, just us, right. like you know, everybody else was here, but you weren't. So, because you and I tend to take off on tangents that <laughs> confuse our spouses sometimes. <laughs> right, right. But it was it was good, and she's like, yeah, she, she said she felt like she knew me better after she saw my organizational style, which is non-existent. So. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, it, it it sounded like it was a good time, and I'm glad she got a chance to go help out. And something we can do to, to help the family. So I need her in um, like once a but, month just to catch me up. So uh, yeah, <laughs> I don't. I mean, I don't know if she's quite up for that. That's the <laughs> yeah. That's I the know, issue. I know. But I would accomplish so. much more in this world with a personal assistant. Just someone bring me coffee, make sure I eat. You know. Pick up the stuff I leave laying around. It would be amazing. (laughs) Yeah. You and I do that thing where we get really focused on stuff. We forget to eat. Um, Yeah. Who needs food? Yeah. (laughs) Just give me another cup of coffee. We're good to go. (laughs) Yeah. I I recently started um, for our school. I'm getting to learn to build uh, marimbas. So I'm basically kind of reverse engineering the ones that we already have. And it's been very interesting, but it's, it's, one of those projects I really like. And the first day Mickey calls me at like one fifteen, and like, have you, you haven't had lunch yet. Have you? Cause I was telling her about all the stuff I got done. She's like, you haven't had lunch yet. Have you? I'm like, mm, no. no. And you know, that doesn't sound very late, but when you figure my day starts at six, you know, that that's pretty far into the work day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, food is optional when you're actually engrossed in what you're doing. So <laughs> Yeah. If I get yeah, engrossed so. enough, like sleep is optional, talking is optional, <laughs> bathroom breaks are optional. I just have to get that focused, which, yeah. Yeah. So maybe one day I'll be able to do that again and, you know, actually get stuff done. So anyway. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, all that being said, we, we should, speaking of getting stuff done, we should probably do our show. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, we can do that. So, did you bring a, Do you bring any notes this I week? I did bri- bring notes. And so we're in First Kings chapter three still. Uh, I think last week we spent like an entire episode on like half a verse. Um, but anyway, yeah. we, we finished up, uh, you know, uh, verse five and we're getting ready to go into verse six. Um, and we talked about uh, just for a little context that, you know, Solomon is at Gibeon. He has... Um, He's gone to sleep. He's had this dream. God's approached him. He said, you know, what do you want? And Solomon is getting ready to make his request. Now, some scholars have seen this connection with God approaching Solomon and saying, asking him, which one do you want? What would you like to have as having a connection back to 2 Samuel 24, I believe it is. Yes. Where um, the prophet Gad comes to David and says, what do you want? And it's three punishments the rebellion that's going on in Israel at that time. It's right after the census. And there is a connection between this passage and 2 Samuel 24, but I don't think that equates with the wisdom being a curse rather than a blessing. And I'm not going to take time to like prove that right now, but as we hit the verses that I think demonstrates that that is an incorrect viewpoint, uh, we'll just point that out. So 
verse 6, it says, And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant, my father, and because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and in uprightness of heart towards you, and you have kept for him the great and steadfast love and given him a son to sit on his throne this day. So he begins, Solomon does, by acknowledging he didn't earn any of this. This is nothing that happened by his own merit. He's become king for two reasons alone. One, God loved David and David loved God. And that love, and we got to go back to that definition from Deuteronomy, where love is a call to action. And that's what David does. David loves God, so therefore David obeys God. And that was all that last four chapters of 2 Samuel. We talked about that. And um, so Solomon, when he's responding, the big thing is he, he recognizes is the love of his father for God that, that placed him in this position. So verse seven, it says, Now, O oh Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. So Solomon says he's a little child. There's two lines of thought with how we should read this. Uh, some claim that at this point he's 20 years old, which, I mean, that's not a hard thing to wrap our minds around. We can kind of go there and be, all right, yeah, I, I can flow with that. But then the, the more disturbing uh, age is 12. And the reason why 12 is so disturbing, it's not that you know a 12-year-old king is really that unusual in the course of history. We have other young rulers in various points in time. It's the fact that he just carried out this major hit on all the people who might have posed a problem for his reign. And then we're getting ready to go into the story with the two prostitutes and the dead baby. So when you put that in context, 12 years old as a king doing these sorts of things, it's just a little crazy, but it does demonstrate just how harsh and brutal this time period was. Right. And I think, you know, I, I think we've got to understand this quote unquote civilized era that we live in is the product of the influence of Judeo-Christian values, especially if you're living in Europe or, or America. And a lot of these cultures that have been influenced, whether or not, you know, it was a true faith in the word, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying the values have impacted the way we treat people. And so, okay, a little bit of a soapbox here. Didn't plan on going here, but why not? I've been seeing a lot of posts about how horrible Christians are to women and how awful the Bible is for women. I think that everyone who makes those posts needs to stop and look up laws concerning women in countries like India, in Saudi Arabia, in China, countries where the Judeo-Christian values have not been the dominant factor in determining ethics, morals, and worth. Because the way women are treated in societies that were influenced by the Bible is far superior to anything, any place else on the planet. And so, you know, I, I just want to throw that out there because I get so tired of people talking about how awful this Christian Jewish God is towards women. That's not the case. Men have used the Bible to hurt women. Don't get me wrong. I'm not denying that. It's not true that God thinks less of women. I, right. I, I but, just... <laughs> well, and yeah, I mean, even even to the point that, that in some, uh, I, I think it's in Japanese. One of my friends was telling me that there's actually like a different dialect that women speak from men. I mean, yes, that, there's the the genders are that far 
separated. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it, and yeah, he he found he found this out because I mean, I guess he probably knew that as he was studying, but he when he went to visit, his friends would make fun of him because he learned Japanese from a woman. Mm-hmm. And so one of his friends said, "Hey, your your uh your Japanese is getting really good." And his other friend said, "Yeah, good like a Japanese woman." Uh so I mean, and this is no slight on Japan as a culture. I'm just right. this is just his experience that you know, we we're not asking women to <laughs> speak a different language. Um, right. where, you know, we're and we're actually providing a lot of opportunity. I mean, are is it perfect? No, not at all. You know, there's still plenty of uh plenty of work to do, especially I think in some churches where we've been taught some very bad things about what the mm-hmm. Bible has to say, some mm-hmm. very incorrect things. So you know, we go back and actually break down the verses and, you know, maybe study the whole of Paul's corpus instead of, you know, Romans 9 and Timothy 2.12. Yeah. What, there's more? You wrote more? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's, but that's, uh, you know, there, there's more to the Bible than just that stuff. And we really do. We need to get back to looking at how God values people. I mean, mm-hmm. and I've, there's, there's so much in there when you actually read what's written. Exactly. Well, and that's the reason why we need women biblical scholars. And so I'm always thrilled when I see a really good woman biblical scholar, because not that what she's going to bring you is, you know, automatically quote unquote feminist. It is because she's going to read it through a different lens simply because she is Mm -hmm. a woman. And that's, I love that. I mean, um, so it's, we've just got to get better. We, We just, we've all got to get better. And we need to be honest. We need to be honest with ourselves and we need to be honest with each other about history and culture and religion and stop bending narratives to fit our agenda. So, um, I'll. Well, and, and I, I want to know what these people who are teaching uh, hard complementarian uh, ideas, I want to know what is it they have to lose by, you know, treating women like people? <laughs> well, I mean, if the, what, what's the downside here of having healthy, productive relationships with the people in your life? You don't I, get I don't to control them all. But yeah. Well, and I also am one of those people. I don't understand trying to control people. I, we get that, that from seems, dad. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I think we have less, less concern about controlling other people than most people I know. And maybe even like to our detriment, like. I'm not talking like uh, in probably. the control factor, but like, I don't need to fix everything. I don't need all the details. I, I just, whatever someone wants to bring to the table, I'll take that. I don't have to probe into their life for more. And so. Well, yeah. Because <laughs> there is that side of us. There's the part of me that's like, that's way too much work to try to control people. Then there's the other side of me that I have to watch out for. That's like, it's just way more amusing to watch them <laughs> right. walk into that. <laughs> whatever you know it's uh <laughs> i um, may so have... i have to balance those uh parts of my personality uh, well you know it's a lot of work some education begins with pain uh but anyway uh work <laughs> let's let's not reveal too much we're gonna scare everyone um but anyway but anyway yeah back to my back to what i was saying though i you know right. I do. I just, and especially uh, with when it comes to like the the marriage books, and I know this is not where we probably weren't planning to go here, but I have been just 
you know, with so many marriage books that talk about men needing to lord over their wives need. And, and treat and huh to need like it's like yeah a biological imperative or something yes yeah and i i'm going i wouldn't treat anyone this way uh, because number one it's really dehumanizing mm -hmm. and <laughs> number two it's again it's a whole lot of work <laughs> and I also didn't marry someone who's so infantile that she needs me to control every aspect of her life. Right. I did that on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that doesn't make and, you uh, less of a man. It, it just says you're secure enough in your masculinity not to have to downplay who she is as a person. And that's, that's what I think. I yeah. think a lot of these guys think they're going to lose their, mas their man card if they actually do allow their women to be people. And so, you know, I've got yeah. a husband and, and my, my husband well, is, you know, he's no slouch and he's not, you know, he's a man's man and I married him intentionally. So, you know, it doesn't have to be degrading to either party. That just, yeah, I don't well, know. It, and it's, I mean, it, I mean, it's to the point stuff like even things of, you know, and is where some and again i haven't read most of these books i just have i've heard snippets and seen excerpts but you know things that say stuff like you know you men need sex the same way women need to talk and i'm like um what you you don't talk to your spouse like our relationship is so much better when we are talking, talking? with one another <laughs> yeah and, and i don't understand these I, I just don't understand someone who wants someone to just do the dishes. Cook a meal. And, yeah. And otherwise just stay out of the way. You know, I, yeah. What, why did you, why did you even get married at that point? Uh, other and, than just to have a housekeeper. And a, well, I won't go there, but yeah. And on the flip side, yeah. Hey, whenever you're having sex in your marriage, that makes it a good marriage too. So, I mean, you know, it's, it, you, it doesn't, it's not either or, and it's not catering just to one person's needs to to fulfill either side of that, com, you know, those components. It, mm -hmm. it can be a both and. And you know what? Sometimes, and I'm finding from talking to a lot of women, it's flipped. And where we've got this stereotypical view of women going, oh, no, not tonight. I've got a headache, honey. It's actually men saying no. Or it's men saying, I need to talk more. So why can't we respond to the individual in front of us instead of a stereotype presented in some really poorly written literature? Just, you know. Yeah. And, <laughs> and again, I didn't mean to go into that, but <laughs> you were just talking about the, the women and, and the way the Bible humanizes them. And I'm like, mm -hmm. I've been listening to a lot of podcasts lately because I've had my headphones on a lot. So <laughs> <laughs> working, working with the saws. Yeah. So. Well, yeah, and that always gets our gears rolling. Anyway, um, Solomon, he was talking to God, and he also makes this interesting statement of he doesn't know in how to come, go out or come in. Uh, this is an idiom for leading an army. We see it in 2 Samuel 5, 2. We, we talked about this. Israel, whenever um, you know, Judah had already proclaimed David to be king, but Israel hadn't. And so when I am actually glad you clarified that because I was imagining like someone who was so clumsy, they would just walk into doors. Well, and that's the thing. This is why knowing idioms is important 
Because, yeah, yeah, you read that at face value. It's like, what in the world is he talking about? Is he really that stupid? No, the, the, the idea that whenever you take an army out, that's the reason why you go out and you come back in. And when Israel was considering making David a king, part of the discussion was, hey, you know, even when Saul was king, you were the guy who led us out and brought us back in. We know we can trust you to be a good leader. And so Solomon's saying, I don't even have that. I don't have that kind of clout with the people. And so, you know, Solomon really is in a very unique uh, situation because he is not, um, this is wholly new for, for Israel. Because unlike David or Saul or many of the judges, he has not fought a war. He hasn't even been uh, shown to be in any kind of one-on-one, man-to-man battle with someone. He's just inherited a throne his father um, gave to him. And so Solomon really shows a sense of both continuity uh, and something wholly new. Uh, Hector's evidently found something he feels like he needs to comment on. but, you know, he's, the continuity comes in because he was chosen. He was appointed by God. We talked about this uh, in a previous episode. And so the judges, they were all chosen by God. Uh, Saul, he was chosen by God, as was David. So there's your continuity. Yet he has received the throne by inheritance. Now, anytime this has been attempted in Israel's history, it hasn't worked. Because if you remember... Gideon had a son, Abimelech, who attempted to become king over Israel. Didn't work. When uh, Samuel was trying, was getting ready to die, he tried to install his sons as judges over Israel. Didn't work. And then Saul's sons all died either before or with him, with the exception of Ishbosheth. And Ishbosheth was evidently such a horrible king that his own men killed him in his home. So, um, you know, this is the idea of having this inherited title is is really new for Israel. Now, you know, it's been going on in other cultures, but for Israel, it's it's a brand new idea. And the fact that he was never proven in battle is also another break in that continuity. So we we need to to recognize what a radical shift this is in the entire political and therefore religious structure of Israel as a nation. Because Israel did not have separation of church and state. The two go together. So verse 8, And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. So um, I think this is the part that actually connects us back to that Second Samuel 24 passage where David took the census. Because Solomon is, first of all, he's acknowledging the enormity of his task as king. It's not just there's a lot of people. It's being a king over this many people is a huge task. And they're too great to be numbered. We can't count them. Or to give you an Emily paraphrase, hey, dad made a mistake. I'm not going to do the same thing he did. So I'm not even going to attempt to have a census because there's just too many to count. He, he's already showing he's willing to learn from other people's mistakes. and so. Um, then he says, <laughs> I'm being invaded over here. Sorry. Uh, in verse nine, give your servant, give your servant, therefore, an understanding, uh, therefore, huh, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil for who is able to govern your great people. Now, 
Solomon is saying that he recognized that governing the nation is beyond human ability. And as a king, he needs to be empowered by God to emulate God, to reflect God's own attributes back into this world. And that's the only way he's going to be successful. And I think, you know, we, we need to understand that uh, and even strive for that as a people uh, today that we would actually seek to emulate God back and recognize that anything we accomplish is not of our own. Excuse me one moment. <laughs> we got to get that dog under control. He's, he's just trying to get right up in your lap, isn't he? He was. He's never attempted that. Leave it. Now I've got a note on the floor that he wants to eat. Um, That's funny. So, okay. Whew. The things you get into in my world. But, uh, hey, you're the one who wanted a dog. I did, and he's great. We'll talk about that later. But, you know, to me, this is a really fascinating thought that Solomon actually realizes that his only path to success in governing God's people is to reflect God's attributes as fully and completely as he possibly can. Now, think about what that means for us. You know, I'm not talking about, you know, some kind of prosperity gospel, you know, quid pro quo thing where we go, hey, God, I'll do this if you'll do that. That's not what Solomon's doing here. He is recognizing his complete and utter dependence on God to actually empower him and impart this wisdom to him because anything he has on his own isn't good enough. And, right. you know, I, I think we need to be working at having that kind of attitude and awareness in our own life. I, I, I need to be loving to my neighbor. I can't do it in my own power. I need to be fully relying on God's guidance through the Holy Spirit today. I need to be patient with my children. Can't do it on my own. I need God. It's that kind of attitude that drives us back to God, seeking his guidance, seeking his support during all of this time. So anyway, what Solomon's saying here is, God's people need a wise leader, and God's people only follow God, and so therefore Solomon has to embody God the best he can. And so he really wants to be this conduit that God's wisdom is dispensed to the nation. Now, Chronicles has a parallel account, and it varies just a little bit, and I think we really need both together, which, I mean, evidently God did too, because that's how he preserved it. But we actually get a little better picture of what's happening if we look at both passages together, because there's a combination of words in here that only occur with them together. So this is Second Chronicles 1.10. It says, give me now wisdom and knowledge to go out and come in before this people, for, for who can govern this people which is, of yours, which is so great. So the combination of words we're looking at specifically is understanding here in Samuel, it's understanding mind is how the ESV has it. It's actually understanding heart. They're both idioms for understanding, so I'm not going to get too nitpicky. Um, wisdom, that's in Chronicles, and knowledge, that's in Chronicles. So as similar as these three terms are, and with all of their overlap, they are distinct things, and they, we need to understand the difference between all three of them because there's a real strong temptation to take them as synonyms. Because how many times have you heard Solomon prayed for wisdom? It's not what Samuel says. Solomon does not pray for wisdom in, in Samuel. He prays for an understanding heart. But 
Anyway, understanding. Uh, here in in Samuel, it is an idiom. It's not the same word that we usually find in Hebrew for, for understanding. Usually, uh, tebedah is the word for understanding. Here, it's a word that's connected back to Shema, that God would give him a heart that listens and obey. So, with the intent to obey. And now, understanding within the biblical context is the ability to discern how one thing relates to another. So it's to grasp how the pieces of the puzzle fit together or, you know, how the cogs of the gears of the clock and um, the teeth fit together. It's to understand the workings of. We, we aren't talking about just a general understanding or to be patient or kind as we kind of think about understanding as an attribute, but to actually get an idea of the inner parts of a system or, uh, a, a, you know, whatever you're dealing with. So um, this means that Solomon is asking God to show him how God's presence, how God's leadership, you know, interplays with this physical reality. And, you know, that's a really cool thing to ask, ask for and to try to understand how does God's presence and God's law impact the world we live in. And this is what he's asking for in, in Samuel. Now in Chronicles, he asked for uh, Dea, which Dea is um, to know. It, it, it comes from the, the, um, the word yada, which is also to know. And it, it has this connotation of intimate experiential knowledge. That's the reason why it so often uses a euphemism for sex. Uh, it's not an abstract idea. It's not like someone just told you about it, but it's that you actually experience it so that you can comprehend it fully. Now, Casuto, and if you're not familiar with Casuto, look him up. He's got great, great writings. He's one of my favorite commentators on Genesis. He defines this type of knowledge as something that was gained and expanded through personal experience and practice. So he, he's kind of got this real nice little package of a um, definition there. But other uses suggest that um, knowledge can encompass the supernatural realm. And I, I think that's actually more uh, representative of what we find in the Bible. And we're going to talk more about that later. But um, this knowledge, whenever we use the same word in Hosea, what we find isn't that, you know, God knows about something. It's this idea of having concern or care for the one or the, the thing that's being known. And I'm just going to read the verse here, Isaiah 13, 4. It says, and this is God talking, it was I who knew you in the wilderness in the land of drought. And then verse 6 in Hosea goes on to describe how it's that loss of knowledge and that, that break in that intimate uh, relationship that actually brings destruction and judgment. So Rashi takes us even further, and he says that knowledge is prophetic inspiration. And so this idea of divine revelation to understand so that you can experience, it, it's a really great study to, to break down these terms. It's one of my favorite um, studies, actually. Now, wisdom or chakma, um, it's a difficult word to define. And it's, it, it's difficult in the Hebrew and it's difficult in the English. Because how do you explain what wisdom is? You know, it's kind of like if you know, you know. Um, Casuto says this is expert, an expert knowledge of techniques and of workmanship and the ability to employ them. So it's often translated as a skill or ability in some translations of the Bible. 
In Ecclesiastes 2.26, we're told for the, for the, I have no idea, uh, for the one who pleases God has given wisdom and knowledge. And so it united, uh, unifies this concept of knowing and wisdom. So the knowledge and wisdom work together. Daniel 2.21 tells us God gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those with understanding. And what this is, you know, what we're seeing here with Solomon, he was wise enough to ask for it, so he gets more. And that's basically what Daniel is saying. There's only three men in the Hebrew scriptures who are identified as being wise. One is Solomon, one's Isaiah, the third one is Bezalel. And there's only two with, who are credited with all three, wisdom, knowledge, and understanding, and that's Solomon and Bezalel, which is fitting when you realize that Solomon's going to build the temple and Bezalel built the tabernacle. Mm -hmm. So both mm -hmm. are sacred spaces where God actually participates in the day-to-day -day life of humanity, where he's manifest and people can actually meet him in this location that these men have created. And both endeavors are a um, recreation and symbolic recreation of Eden, the place where God originally walked with humanity. And we're going to talk more about uh, how the, the temple does that. We're not going to get too deep into the temple because you can get bogged down for years with that. But we're, we do want to touch on it. But Proverbs, this is interesting. Proverbs uh, talks about God creating the earth. And he, it says, the Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped dew. So there's this idea if you are involved in a creative act, particularly a creative act where sacred space is what the product is supposed to be, what the end result should be, then you have to have these three attributes. So it makes sense that Solomon would have these three attributes, that this is what he's given. It's not just wisdom. You've got to have those other two components, just like Bezalel had those other two components. And we're going to talk a little bit about comparison between Solomon and Bezalel as we go forward, but um, we'll we'll try to keep it back, you know, to a minimum right now. But there are a couple other things I want to say. Meredith Klein, uh, he describes the building of the tabernacle as the symbolic representation of God enthroned in the midst of His divine council, and then he says it's a redemptive reenactment of creation and function uh, functioning as the creative paradigm. So. All of these statements, and he's talking about the tabernacle, all of these statements are equally valid when we talk about the temple, because one is the temporary portable dwelling for a nomadic people, one is the permanent residence for an established people. And so as such, Bezalel and Solomon participate in the acts of God by reenacting creation in order to create a space where people could connect with their creator. And if Solomon were to succeed in such a monumental task, he had to have these attributes. So um, I, I, I just, I love the idea of creation. I, I love all the inspiration and, and the divine revelation. I mean, you know, I went into uh, seminary as an artist trying to figure out where did the visual arts fit into uh, this thing we call church and Christianity. And so I spent a lot of time here. So if I get just, you know, a little like off in the weeds, it's because this is an important topic to me. But even in Solomon's own words here, we catch a glimpse of Eden and what he's saying. Um, we have, even though we haven't encountered any direct references to the temple just yet in the Book of Kings, 
Solomon says he wants to discern, discern between good and evil. So immediately, whenever we hear those words, most of us who study scripture flash right back to Genesis. We're, we're thinking back to, to Eden. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is one of the symbols we find in both the tabernacle and the temple. It's in a lampstand. And what's funny about that is in rabbinic lore, it's the, the design and the execution of the lampstand that trips Moses up so badly that God has to call in Bezalel to do the work because Moses is, just can't get it. He, he's not wise enough. And matter of fact, in order for Bezalel to be wise enough to accomplish this work, God says, I have filled him with my spirit. And one of the very few people in the Old Testament where God makes that kind of claim where he says, I have filled him with my spirit, which, you know, you want to talk about whether people had the, uh, God's spirit, the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. There you go. So verse 10, it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. So, when, you know, I said, you know, people want to read this wisdom as a curse. I don't think it's appropriate. Why would it please God if it's going to be something that he's going to punish? So I think right there. <laughs> I know one systematic that has no problem with that. I mean, yeah, <laughs> I'm not going to get too far into it, but if you know, you know. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the, the request is, it's so counter for what any other king of this day would have asked for. And it, it really is that evidence of Solomon's pre-existing wisdom, even before God gives him this, you know, supernatural dose, if you will. And, you know, David's already cited Solomon's wisdom as one of the reasons why Solomon can figure out what to do with Shimei. But, uh, you know, it's not just the request that pleases God. It's the motive for the request. Because Solomon isn't asking for himself. If he was asking for himself, he would have asked for other things. Instead, he's saying, I, I want this so I can govern the people well, is how the ESV has it translated, but it, it's really kind of a poor translation. The, wor the word here is shafat, which is usually translated as judge, which is, you know, that's one of the stated reasons the people wanted a king back in uh, Samuel, 1 Samuel 8, is they say, give us a king to judge us. And Solomon goes, I want to do this well. And so it's not a self-serving request. It's not, it's not just make me wise so I can enjoy some kind of superiority. It's make me wise so I can do this job I've been given and do it well. And, you know, I think when we ask for the right reasons, even when we ask for the right things, that just adds to God's enjoyment of fulfilling that request. So verse 11, God said to him, because you have asked this and not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but ask for yourself understanding to discern what is right. So the, the, the list God recites here, what you got going on i here? forgot to silence my phone um uh, so, oh, okay but uh i didn't hear it oh, normally good. i do but it, it didn't come well through. i've got it kind of set away i've well, got it now everyone knows yeah i gotta set the like the phone out past the metal roof so i get enough signal um but you know, God God recites this list of what would have been common kingly request, what most kings of this day would have desired. Uh, we know from from archaeology, we've got all these funerary rites and rituals that were observed. We, you know, you can look at the tombs of the pharaohs from contemporary time periods. This idea of a long life and trying to pursue that through 
you know, honoring the dead bodies correctly. This is something the kings were really concerned with. I, otherwise, we wouldn't have the pyramids. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, the, uh, the riches of the royal court so that you can impress people, you can buy people off. I mean, that, that's something kings were concerned with because they wanted to appear powerful. How do you appear powerful? By having more treasure that you've taken away from everybody than anyone else. And of course, you know, um, you could only remain king during this time period, it, usually, if you could kill your enemies. And so Solomon doesn't ask for any of that. He just asks to be a good king, a wise king. That's crazy because he could have asked for everything else. But God says, hey, because she didn't give it to you, do you, uh, sorry, because she didn't request that, let's talk about what I am going to do for you. So verse 12, behold, now do I do, sorry, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind. So that none like you has been before you, none like you has been before you, and none like you shall rise after you. So this verse is fun because it sparked like this huge debate among the rabbis because Moses was the guy in the Hebrew scriptures. I mean, if you want to talk about mm-hmm. somebody to you know revere, basically, it's supposed to be Moses. And how could Moses possibly? You know, he, how could he possibly not be the wisest guy? I mean, he met with, guy fa- with God face to face. He transmitted the Torah. He led them out of Egypt. He kept them alive in the desert. Surely Moses had to be the, the wisest person who ever lived. And so uh, there was a lot of debate, and they actually did come up with a solution. And the solution is that Moses was wiser in spiritual matters, whereas Solomon was wiser in natural matters. And they base this on a verse that's coming up in chapter four. And so, but what I love about the debate, it demonstrates that no human being is actually capable of being the wisest, no matter how wise they are. If you're not relying on God, you're still going to get led astray because Moses messed up, Solomon's going to mess up. And it really demonstrates that, you know, we don't have to figure out who the wisest person or the wisest character in the Bible is according to humanity. We can actually go, I, I know who the wisest one is. I know who's going to be the great leader who's actually going to get it all right. And that's going to be Jesus. So we don't have to get caught up in the debate. So anyway, verse 13, God continues. He says, I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare to you in all your days. And so God gives Solomon everything that he knows a king would want. And so if you notice here, there's no condition given. God says, I'm just, here it is. I'm going to roll it out for you. All you got to do is enjoy. Now in verse 14, there's a little shift. And if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your day. So there is a condition applied to the length of his life. So basically, I'm going to give you all this, but if you're going to act a fool, I'm going to take you out. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, got to paraphrase this stuff. But the, the idea that there can be conditional and unconditional things within God's promises. I, I really get frustrated when I hear people talk about, well, if God's love was unconditional, he wouldn't expect me to, you know, fill in the blank. I mean, there's a whole list of sins that we like to defend. If God's love was unconditional, he wouldn't want me to change who I am. 
Okay, we've said it before, it bears repeating. True love is transformational. True love does not let you act a fool. True love will stop you. And if you don't love God enough to change for him in order to experience more of him in your life, do you really love him? If you aren't willing to obey, that's what this whole story has been talking about, about David's obedience. This is why it's so important. David loved God. He obeyed God. Yes, he screwed up with Bathsheba. We know that. But there was repentance and there was a change. And so when we talk about David following God's statutes and getting it right, we're talking about David in that last four chapters of Samuel. We're not talking about David prior to that. We're recognizing he was flawed before this. We aren't denying that he sinned and sinned massively. But we get to the point to that and go, God's forgiveness is so complete that when David did repent, what he remembers of David, what he praises David for, is when David gets it right. And when he does walk according to God's statutes, because that was David's expression to love, of love to God. And we need to get to the point where in our own lives, we stop looking at obedience as some kind of oppressive thing that God demands of us. We need to look at it as our ability to, to express our love to him. And so, you know, if you can't express your love to God in the way he says, this is how you do it, when he gives you an instruction manual, that's on you. That's mm, not God mm. being unrelenting. He says, hey, if you don't, don't want to do that, fine. I will let you do what you want to do. So God isn't being some tyrant. He's just giving you the choice. Do you want to participate in the relationship in a healthy, respectful manner or not? And, it, you know, there are so many Facebook pay, posts out there about, you know, if they can't love you at your worst, they don't deserve you at best, blah, blah, blah. And how we need to set boundaries in our personal relationships. And if you think God doesn't get to do that, then you think less of God than you did the abuser you just left. So anyhow, so let's see where I am in my notes. This guy a little lost. And verse 15a, and Solomon awoke and behold, it was a dream. So, you know, if you or I were going to say that, we would say, you know, we would basically be saying what we just experienced wasn't true. That's not a division that was made in the ancient world. Dreams mm. were considered real experiences. They had some validity. Uh, yeah, they did have levels of dreams that they recognized. Some were just, you know, don't go to bed when you're gassy. But then there were there's some levels of dreams that they recognized as being a real encounter with the spiritual world. We talked about that in a previous episode. And, you know, we need to realize that just because Solomon said, hey, oh, yeah, or the writer of Kings says Solomon realized this is a dream, does not invalidate the experience. And what happens next is going to bear that out. It's going to confirm this was a real experience. So verse 15b, then he, Solomon, came to Jerusalem and stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. So. Once he completed the burnt offerings at Gibeon, he comes back with his entourage and they go to the field that David had bought and brought the, the Ark of the Covenant into in order to um, create a place for the temple to be built. And you know David had built the altar there and Solomon offers another set of sacrifices here at, here at Jerusalem. And politically, this is just, I mean, this is a smart, smart move because he offers the burnt offerings. 
But then he offers the peace offerings. And um, peace offerings were something that were made to signify Thanksgiving or Toda. And they were usually given after a monumental event, like, uh, you know, God speaking to you directly and asking what you want. So this is a monumental event. They are also an act of communion and unity because part of the sacrifice is burned up for God, the fat and um, various uh, organs. Part of the sacrifice is given to the priest to eat, but then the rest of it is brought back to the, um, the one who's making the sacrifice and the family and friends who are with him so that they can have a feast. And everyone, including the servants, as noted in this verse, they're included. So, you know, we talked about this before, how eating's one of the few biological functions that you actually share with other people. And so, at least publicly. And so, this is really smart, you know. This is because Solomon's, he, he's demonstrating the continuity and respect for his father's decisions. And, you know, his father's purposes for Jerusalem to be the center of worship for God. He's confirming that Jerusalem is the proper location for uh, royal worship, that you don't have to go to this high place. And also he's demonstrating that this, this, this communion, this unity with God is for everyone within the, within the kingdom. It's not just for the king, it's also for the servants. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's important that the verse in, makes that uh, inclusion there. Now, Gibeon was the, you know, we talked about it was the high place and it was part of Benjamin and, and going there signified, you know, hey, you're still part of the country, you're still part of the nation. But it's one of many scattered high places of worship and individuals and groups would go there. It was not a national event. And almost all of the stories within the Bible that we have of high places, they, they really are about an individual experience with God. They aren't about a national experience with God. And even whenever there was an attempt for, you know, Sinai, which could loosely be classified as a high place, whenever Moses went up and God said, you know, hey, bring the people up, the people said, we don't anything to do with that. We, we, we can't mm-hmm. get that close. And so we're having this shift where the, these individualistic experiences in a high place are now being replaced by a national experience that's going to be, uh, it's going to be part of the reality because now we're going to have feasts and festivals where the entire nation comes from all parts of the nations. All the tribes are going to come and they're going to participate in these events together. And, mm-hmm. and that's, I, I really do think that that's one of the reasons why we still have the nation of Israel today. I, I think if we had not had this, this, you know, just very ingrained system of worship that says we all come together, we all experience the, these very elaborate, if you will, rituals and celebrations that, that cement our identity, both as an individual and a nation, we probably wouldn't know Israel as a functioning nation today. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I'm not, you know, an anthropologist or sociologist, but I, I do think that's true. So um, the last story in here, First um, Kings 3, 16 through 28, I'm not going to go through the whole story. I think we all know. We got two prostitutes. They go to Solomon. They're arguing their case. The case is this. Sometime during the night, one of the prostitutes rolled over on top of her baby and she smothered it to death and she switched it with the other prostitute. And now they've got to figure out who the real mom is. So 
everyone knows the story. Solomon obviously can't know who the real mommy is because no one's there to witness it. And um, he demands that a sword be brought and that the baby be cut in half and distributed among, among the mothers. Okay. So I wanted to talk less about the story itself and the importance of it. Because when you've got to realize, well, number one, it's here because it's demonstrating the fulfillment of God's promise to Solomon in that dream. Okay. Solomon was mm. promised wisdom. He's gotten it. Here's the evidence. But you, you know, there's more than one case. More than one set of people came before Solomon and said, we have a dispute and we need your wisdom to line this out. So we have to ask, why did the writer choose to include this one? This was a deliberate choice because he could have said, hey, here's a dispute between two of the royal court officials. Here's a dispute dispute between uh, tribal elders. Here's a dispute um, with anyone of some kind of standing. Instead, he chooses to give us this, this really disturbing case of between two prostitutes. So most commentators, you know, they're immediately, uh, they pick up on this fact and they go, hey, this shows you that everyone in Solomon's kingdom received justice. Everyone was capable of getting justice. Okay, so that's great. I, I think that's a wonderful um, point. And I, I don't think we should overlook it. I do think this is one of the things we fall down on as Christians. We think, oh, there's certain people that, you know, just get what they deserve. And we don't really worry about justice for the the lower echelons of society. When in God's kingdom, when the king is operating with God's wisdom, everybody gets justice. Um, Now, the other thing that's going on here, we're also told these women, they live in a house together. What this means is there's no one else to witness this witness this. No one can come forward and say, yes, this is her child. This is that child. This is what happened. Solomon has to figure out on his own with no evidence of what the truth is. This means their only hope for figuring this out or getting a why, uh, you know, the correct ruling is in the wisdom of Solomon. Uh, the other interesting thing about this story is Solomon orders that the sword be given to him that, you know, he doesn't tell someone else to bring a sword and use it. You know, before when Shimei and Joab and everybody else was killed, he commissioned Benaniah to carry out the executions. He says, bring it to me. And so Solomon is shown to be a little bit of an opposing figure here because in order for his plan to work, the women have to believe that he's capable of actually cutting the baby in half. If they didn't believe he was capable, they're just going to continue to argue. Mm-hmm. it's their fear, it's their awe, their reverence that actually brings everything to a halt. And so, which that's part of why, you know, the idea of Solomon being 12 is a little disconcerting. And, you know, the thing is, in most of these societies, for a king to kill a child, a child of a, of a whore, it really doesn't matter. No one would have thought anything about it. And so the fact that Solomon does this, I mean, nobody in the court tries to stop him. That's kind of crazy whenever we think about it in today's terms. That would have been normal back then. But. Right. Go ahead. And, and, and I'm just juxtaposing those pictures, um, you know, because if, if we're talking about the king being God's chosen representative, um, the, the picture of a imposing king who's an adult maybe in his 20s 
uh, who everyone believes might actually kill the baby versus a 12-year-old mm-hmm. who everyone thinks is just crazy enough to kill a baby. Mm-hmm. I mean, those are two very different pictures. Right. <laughs> and, you know, and I think we should play with both of them. I, I think there's a reason why it's not clarified in Scripture. And I think sometimes whenever we have that kind of disparity in possible translations or, you know, factual events, Maybe it's because we should play with both images. Maybe we should actually take time to think about what the ramifications of either one being true are. But you know, the, the final point in all of this, the child lives. Because Solomon, you know, the one woman says, no, don't kill him, just give him to her, let him live. And Solomon says, you know, that's the real mom. Give, give the baby to her. Now, what we need to understand is only in a kingdom where prostitutes could seek and receive justice and only in a kingdom where the king is supernaturally empowered to discern the truth and only in a kingdom where the king is willing to take a sword in his hand his own hand and only in a kingdom where the king commands this kind of respect is the child capable of living that's the only place where the child stays alive that's only where the place where the woman receives justice any other kingdom, any other person, the child is divided, the child dies. And so the, the point of this whole story is it's the wisdom of Solomon that keeps the child intact. So back to that question, why the story? Because this is just a precursor of what's to come. Because we're going to see that it's only Solomon's wisdom that keeps Israel intact. We have a tendency to forget Israel. It wasn't that long ago. They were just a bunch of loosely united coalition of tribes who were ruled by judges who did not function as rulers over the entire nation. It wasn't that long ago that that Judah proclaimed David king, and they had to wait and see how things played out before before Israel could accept David as king. And it also was even, you know, even closer in the timeline when Shiva says, hey, this whole king thing isn't working out. We need to go back to a ruling in our own houses, each man in his own house, like it was in the days of the judges. That was while David was alive. Israel is barely held together with the finest of threads. It it is ready to fall apart at any moment. And keeping it together, keeping it from becoming divided, is going to take every bit of wisdom that Solomon has. And we know this is, is the truth, because what happens the second, almost the second, Solomon dies, boom, split kingdom, divided kingdom. Mm-hmm. And when you divide the kingdom, the kingdom starts to die. And it becomes, it becomes non-functional. And so the story here actually sets us up for what's going to happen throughout the rest of the Book of Kings. The story helps us understand what we're dealing with and the delicacy and just the, the, the horrific consequences of what happens when wisdom is not the primary driving force behind the throne. Because Solomon's sons, they don't have it, and they ruin everything. So I think that's one of the things that we really need to, to think about going forward is the significance of, of wisdom. So. I'm just going to read the last verse here of that chapter. And it says, And all of Israel heard the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived 
that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. All of Israel, not Judah and Israel together. It's one entity at this point. This is the, the little final, you know, driving that point home by the writer. Um, they understood that the wisdom Solomon was exercising in this moment with these two women was not his own. It was of God because only God can rule Israel. People can't rule Israel. And that's what we're going to see in Kings. If a king is not fully submitted to God, doing what God dictates and allowing God to rule through him, the kingdom, it suffers. This is what Samuel warned the people of back in 1 Samuel, um, forget the, I think it's chapter 11. But the, the point being, only when God is ruling, it, does Israel actually prosper? Is there good things going on? But the minute we start to see uh, any kind of wavering away from God, that's when the kingdom falls apart. And Solomon is going to depart from God, and God's going to remain true to those unconditional promises he gave. But God says, I can't let this continue, and God's going to shorten his days. All of that's, you know, <laughs> what we're going to be moving forward into as we uh, do our next episode. Yeah. That's what I'm trying to say. All right. <laughs> cool. Well, we'll go ahead and break there. And uh, everyone, thanks for joining us. Uh, if you enjoyed what you heard, uh, give us a like, a share, write us a review. Um, those things really do help us out to, to reach more people. And uh, uh, if you want to be part of the conversation, hit us up on ravencreeksc.com where uh, you can find this show, other show, and uh, show notes for some of the older episodes. We need to get uh, back on to some more of them. Uh, and Raven Creek SC on all the social media where you can uh, join us for whatever <laughs> happens on Facebook. I don't know. So uh, anyway, thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.